Welcome to Granite State Matters, the busy person's way to catch up with what's happening in New Hampshire because extremists are taking over the state house, and what you don't know can hurt you. I'm Steve Marchand, and welcome to Granite State Matters. During the summer, we've taken a little time off, but our episode today is as important as any that we'll talk about this year. It's the freedom of speech and civility. How do we live together? You know, it seems like in so many different ways, in and out of politics, we are in a, uh, a time where language is coarse and relationships are strained. Uh, and we wanted to take an episode today to talk a little bit about why that might be. Uh, the experience of people in public life who are trying to do something about it, sometimes their own personal experiences informing it. And then to think about solutions, about how we can live together, work together, succeed together as a state. And we're lucky. We have three different people here today who I think are exceptionally thoughtful and will bring their own experiences to the table. Uh, our first guest is the policy director for the New Hampshire ACLU, Frank Kanak. Frank, thank you so much for being here today. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Our second guest is the Reverend Dr. Gail Kenny, uh, who is the co-convener of the Faith and Labor Coalition, of which the New Hampshire Council of Churches is an active partner. Uh, Reverend, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure and privilege, Steve. And then our final guest, somebody I've known personally for quite a while, my friend Dan Weeks. Dan uh, is a former executive council candidate, uh, a frequent uh, thought leader in terms of writing op-eds and voicing some, I think, really uh, important messages. And somebody who has unique experiences as one of, uh, as a family who has been in New Hampshire for Dan, you'll correct me, more than 10 generations, I believe, and uh, is the dad of mixed-race children, of a diverse family that has led to some experiences that I think are unfortunate, but also open the eyes to opportunities about how we can learn and do better as a state. So, Dan, on so many levels, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Steve. Great to be with you all. So let me start with this. Uh, and... Uh, you know what, uh, Reverend, I'm going to start with you on this, and then we'll go around the horn. I alluded to this a moment ago. You, you're hearing this on both sides of the aisle. You're hearing this from people that are not political at all in civic life, that things are getting more coarse, that people are feeling like they're going to go into their own corners uh, and are willing to demonize oftentimes people that are not just like them, that you're either uh, with them or completely against them in all manners of public life. And it's really made it more difficult to find consensus, to build community, and uh, to avoid sort of some of the worst parts of the, the spirits of people. What do you find in your work, and uh, why do you think this is the case today? Uh, and do you find this uh, growing over the last several years? Well, thank you for the question. That's a pretty big question. We could spend a lot of time um, just on that, about what, what and why and who. Uh, for starters, I just want to say that the um, the faith community writ large, for the most part, uh, we like to talk about that sense of beloved community and that part of what calls us into our faith tradition, no matter what tradition it is, is the desire to 
build up beloved community, to love our neighbor, to carry out the commandment of caring for one another, including the least of these. Mm. And so when we see the kind of division which is growing at this point in time, um, one of the things that we need to recognize and to be honest with ourselves about is quite frankly, this is intentional. This did not just happen. This is not organic. Uh, this we understand uh, the divisions, the legislation that has fed into divisions, the rhetoric that has fed into divisions, the media, social media, and uh, cable news networks that have fed into divisions. This is intentional. And this is really about uh, people who have a certain vision of what power should be, what privilege should be, trying to develop their own uh, or develop movements that create divisions so that they can walk into the breach and to seize the, the power um, that is representative of their own ideology. So this is just the absolute opposite of people coming together and trying to build a beloved community. And what we believe is that we need to understand this. We need to understand why it's happening. We need to understand how these divisions are being manufactured and how uh, we all have in one way or another become victims of this because the only way we can change it, the only way we can get back to beloved community is if we understand what's happening why it's happening, what our vulnerabilities are, and then how we can move beyond it with that kind of education and awareness. I guess one question I have, Dan, let me go to you uh, with this, is this description the Reverend has just given, it's pretty evident. How much of this is growing because uh, of changes in the way that people are seeing their place in the community, changes in how people see their place in life? How much of it is that it has always been there except that things have changed either in technology and the pandemic and a number of other factors that have taken what was already sort of latently there and brought it to the surface in a way that now we all see. And, and then how much of it is changes in the incentives for how people are perceived that they're rewarded uh, and are successful? What are the factors that are going into this? Yeah, Steve, another really big question. You know, you use the word change a number of times, and that is something that we are confronting. We've always confronted it, but in this time, last two years of pandemic and so much else, so much other turbulence, it feels like maybe the rate of change, degree of change is more than we're used to. And we know that change can be tough, and we as humans often shy away from it. Maybe we, we fear it, and we try to stop it in different ways. And I think the answer is is both, right? You know, it's it's always a complex system. And on the one hand, we've seen a lot of abrupt changes in the last two years, and the pandemic has really pulled folks apart. Maybe there was an initial period of pulling together as we were grappling with this unprecedented experience of a global pandemic. But before too long, we were pulling apart. And I, I think part of what what's been driving that pulling apart is that to the last part of your question, Steve, we do have a set of incentives, a political discourse that really seems to reward the most extreme voices out there that want to get the most attention. And you get the most attention often by saying the most provocative, sometimes insulting or just downright mean things. And so, you know, I look at us human beings, myself included, as as complex creatures, which are capable of 
really good things and also capable of really bad things. And we, we see this manifesting across communities and even in the life of a single individual, there are days that I'm proud of and there are days that I'm not so proud of myself. And so it matters a lot what we're, what's being called out of us. And I think if I'm hearing in your question, this, this tendency we've seen in the last few years for, for certain political leaders, and, and yes, I would point to the former president to call out maybe the, the worst in us, in a sense. You know, I know a lot of folks in my community, grew up with folks, go to church with folks still who, who definitely voted for the former president, members of my family, and I love them, and, and I try to be in community with them. Uh, yet I also see how he's maybe tapped into parts of their being that lead them to, to express sentiments that, that are kind of tough for, for my family to hear based on the, the unexpected place I find myself as a dad, very white male, New Hampshire kind of person brought up in the state who's now blessed to be the father of three mixed race kids and, and the husband of a, a woman from South Africa who have experienced things I never imagined were still part of the New Hampshire story. And yet we we do have political leaders, unfortunately, who have really sought to pull us apart and, and really lean into that tribal identity. That's sure, it's always been part of who we are, but it doesn't need to be the defining part of who we are. And yet it seems in recent years, it has become more and more defining and, and allowed people even encouraged people to express some some kind of meme sentiments that I don't think folks by and large want to do ill toward my kids. You know, we, we care about our kids in the next generation. And yet in a context of change and, and fear that can come with that and with certain political leaders kind of pointing the way toward a rather mean politics, yeah, it, it gets expressed and, and we've seen it and, and it hurts sometimes. Frank, the ACLU is a very interesting part of this conversation, not just uh, in contemporary times, but going way back. Uh, some of the most controversial and one one could say often hateful speech that was nonetheless protected by our country um, was uh, uh, often uh, protected in terms of the right to say such things by the ACLU. Uh, and of course, so this isn't a new thing in that regard, but in the context of trying to make sure that we preserve civil liberties, preserve free speech, the ability to say things that are unpopular, but often very painful and hateful in the process. Um, it seems like things have moved a little bit more. And I don't know whether I'm just talking about a recency bias or whether there appears to be more of a codification of such uh, sentiments and language into law after a period of time over the last 50 or 60 years where I kind of thought the country was moving away from codifying such um, beliefs uh, and and even actions. Uh, am I perceiving that correctly? And, and where is the ACLU in terms of the role of civility um, while trying to protect civil liberties? You know, I think the two obviously, from our perspective, go hand in hand. Um, you know, I think one of the things we've been most concerned about recently, not only in New Hampshire, but across the country, is this attempt to rewrite American history um, and to ignore the racist foundation upon which our country was built upon. Um, and so we've seen this in New Hampshire with the, uh, the so-called banned concept law that was passed last year and is currently being litigated by us and, and our coalition partners. 
Um, but this has been part of an ongoing political project to kind of, you know, we see this in the criminal legal sense where we have, you know, throughout our history, we have laws and policies that have been used to target black, brown, and other marginalized people um, and have been enforced by our law enforcement actors. Um, and the law has been a tool to kind of um, uh, keep black, brown, uh, marginalized communities um, at bay um, and law enforcement has been their tool to do so. We saw that with um, from slavery through, you know, uh, Jim Crow, the war on drugs, convict leasing. We even see that now with the movement for black lives and the repression of protests by law enforcement. Um, so, you know, we're seeing this in, in multiple ways right now. And, and from our perspective, it's, it's as important as ever to ensure um, not only that people have the ability to speak their mind, but that the government itself is not um, uh, rewriting the history um, and, and corrupting um, you know, what, um, what our true foundation is and hiding that from, from the community. That's going to lead me into some questions dealing with this divisive concepts legislation that uh, earlier this year sought to build off of uh, successfully passed legislation last year. Some of our listeners may or may not be familiar with it. Last year, uh, a law was passed uh, that set uh, a number of regulations barring K-12 through teachers from certain instruction uh, related to race and gender. Uh, it alluded to, uh, Frank, you mentioned this a moment ago, uh, the way that certain parts of our history as a country could be or not be discussed. And in 2022, there were some lawmakers who sought to extend these regulations beyond K through 12 uh, into public colleges and universities and, um, and then to kind of go from there. It certainly was a hot issue throughout the legislative session. Uh, and although it did not and ultimately succeed for this year in going as far as they uh, the, the sponsors sought to, uh, it certainly has not gone away. And if we look nationally, I think there are states around the country that are successfully uh, passing versions of this uh, all over the place. This is not going away anytime soon. Um, uh, Reverend, you and many of your peers were quite vocal in your opposition to this, uh, taking it to the streets, literally in opposition. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw the impacts of this if it had passed and the impacts of what already has passed are doing to New Hampshire and our communities and how we discuss or can no longer discuss uh, certain parts of our history? Right. So first of all, it's interesting that uh, what the the law last year that was then ultimately rolled into the budget, uh, the budget trailer bill uh, known as divisive concepts or now ban concepts, uh, the, the law and lawmakers said that they were trying to ban uh, any discussion that would be divisive. And yet the very existence of the language in that law itself was meant to be intentionally divisive. And um, I think that uh, most people in the faith community recognized that early on, that this was this legislation, we need to understand, did not bubble up with legislators in New Hampshire. Mm. This is a national effort. This was nationally written legislation that then was passed on uh, to sympathetic legislators um, in New Hampshire, both last year and, and this year in terms of trying to advance this into colleges and also trying to do something under the guise of so-called parental rights. Uh, it was an effort to stir people up. And um, again, this is an intentional 
well-funded national effort, and we need to recognize that. And so as uh, faith community leaders, and it, it, frankly, it took a, a little while for people to wake up. Uh, when the original Divisive Concepts or Banned Concepts Bill was introduced a, a year ago, I think most faith leaders thought, oh, well, this is so insane, this is so crazy, this is so not New Hampshire, uh, that it will just die its own death um, for its insanity. And when it stayed alive and when it grew and when the excitement built around this um, or, or the language the, of the proponents uh, continued to build and it seemed to get legs, that's when I think there was a real sense of, of um, uh, the faith community, certain faith community leaders being terrified of the implications overall. And the implications really are to divide people, to make people fear one another based on race, um, based on gender, um, based on gender orientation or gender expression. And, um, and we know that this is a way to tear down community rather than build it up. And so that's what um, that's what really galvanized the concern of the faith community. And we said, we can't just stand by, we've got to speak out, we've got to show up, we've got to say something. And that's still building. Frankly, we're still educating um, members of the faith community and faith leaders of how terrifying this is uh, for our future and for the future of, of any possibility of us coming together. But I just wanna say one more thing quickly. Sure. And when um, we need to really understand who the architects of this were, who first came up with this fear of critical race theory um, and then passing it on through model legislation to the various states. And a very small number of actors were involved in this, including one gentleman whose name is Christopher Rufo, uh, who works with the Heritage Foundation and other think tanks and a small Christian college called Hillsdale College. And when he described this movement that he was building, this anti-critical race theory movement, uh, this anti-divisive concepts movement, he said, and this is not a quote, but this is in essence what he said, that he wanted to take everything that he thought that parents were fearing, that people had angst about, and somehow roll it into um, this his anti-critical race theory movement so that when people felt uh, you know, fearful, afraid, or concerned about their future, um, that they would somehow think critical race theory when they were just thinking about their own fears. And and that way, tapping into people's fears and then making them fearful of the other, uh, you know, the mm. um, the racial other, the gender other, um, that would it be it would be a way to divide people enough so that in the middle of that division could come a way of undermining the public good, undermining the common good, undermining beloved community. Um, and so this is why we care so deeply. And this is not something that has failed to get any traction. As you note, this is a national level movement, national level effort, well-funded. New Hampshire is not the first state. It is the latest state to be a part of this. And it would not be getting the attention, and frankly, the traction nationally that unfortunately it has, unless there was some kind of um, fertile ground among uh, a critical percentage of the population in order for it to be able to get that traction. Um, Dan, you, we, you've, you've already mentioned it. I mentioned it in the intro um, that uh, you're a proud dad. You have a beautiful family and you have a family that, frankly, although the face of New Hampshire demographically, including racially, is changing, it certainly remains 
uh, um, very much uh, uh, like the the state uh, that it has been over the last several hundred years. Um, and so you have had your children uh, had to face some of the worst slurs, including the N-word. And I can't imagine how I would feel if members of my family, including my children, had to face that quite directly, like to your face. Um, that fertile ground is there. So, and Dan, you've seen it more directly than most of us will, frankly, certainly in this conversation. What is going on that is allowing the ground to be sufficiently fertile, that legislation like this can become law, and that a not insignificant number of people can feel comfortable enough with those sentiments that they actually verbalize them in the way that they are? What's going on here? Why is it so fertile? Yeah, Steve, I appreciate that question, too. Uh, maybe I can take it a slightly different direction and just pause for a moment on the word racist. Hmm. And that's thrown around a lot. And it's it's a challenging word, a, a sort of weaponized one. And I think we fundamentally misunderstand it when we look to just slap it as a label on certain bad people, including some angry older white men who have called my wife the n-word and told her to go back to where she belongs or even some teenagers who yelled it toward my kids at the playground but what concerns me is not so much a few individuals and maybe they're more numerous than i'd like to think certainly than i thought growing up who harbor really mean views toward folks of color but rather so not so much racist as a noun which describes those bad people but rather racist as an adjective, which frankly, I'd argue describes all of us some of the time, but none of us all of the time. And, and I do include myself in that. There are times I'm not proud of in my past when I have harbored subconsciously racist views and, and acted in ways that I'm not so proud of. I haven't used the N-word, but maybe crossing the street when I was younger in a part of Boston where I wasn't sure if I'd be safe as, as a man of African descent walked down that sidewalk. And, and I'm not proud of that. And yet I've been swimming in this water. My family's been here, as you mentioned, a long time, 12 generations. And, you know, I was never taught that here in New Hampshire, we, we enslaved people up until the 1840s. It was finally abolished in 1858, a little before the Civil War. And um, there's, there's plenty of tough history here. And uh, what I want to say is that if we can start by reconceptualizing that term racist, not as the noun which describes a few bad people over there, but certainly never me as a good, decent person, but rather as something that partially defines modern American society, including in this particular state we love. So that leads me to pivot away from those bad acts, you know, even the, the neo-Nazis who put bad graffiti here near our home in Southern New Hampshire, not targeting us per se, but targeting a friend who's a state legislator mm. of Hispanic origin and, and other people in this more diverse community of Nashua where we live. But pivot away from that towards some of the structural forces, which we have just not unfortunately had the courage to confront. And, and just to throw out a, a few really simple examples, here in New Hampshire, a, a child of of color is 43% more likely, uh, specifically a black child is 43% more likely than, than a white child as an infant to have low birth weight and 33% more likely to die in childhood, especially from environmental pollution 
related to our, our climate emissions. Um, we know that as these kids get a little older, uh, go through high school, that black teenagers in New Hampshire are three times as likely to be arrested as, as white teenagers, um, more than five times as likely to sit in county jail or state prison. And that's usually for nonviolent offenses like drug possession, even though white and black kids use and sell illegal drugs at just about the same rate. Um, we know that we have the third highest racial pay gap in, in all 50 states here in New Hampshire, and that residential segregation has been growing. It's these kind of below the surface factors, which unfortunately our, our legislature, the current majority through the Divisive Concepts Bill have been trying to really sweep under the, under the rug, I, I fear, by banning discussion and teaching about systemic racism, that is racism in, in its true understanding, and we're content to just point the finger at a few bad apples when, when it's a lot deeper than that. And if we want to build a state that's going to thrive, you know, my other hat is as a business owner with a, a growing business, and, and we're hiring dozens of positions right now. And if we're going to be able to grow and invest in our communities and, and help New Hampshire thrive, we need to be a welcoming place. We need to attract more people from all backgrounds and keep more of our young people right here in state. Uh, and we know that our, our young generation is a lot more diverse than New Hampshire was when I was growing up. And if we're going to let these unfortunate structural racist conditions persist, we're going to be shooting ourselves in the foot economically and, and just the health of our communities. This change that you're describing, and, and actually, Dan, I'm glad you brought it up, the, rethinking uh, the term racist as sort of this, you, you know, all or nothing, right? You're either all the way the worst kind of person we we think of the stereotype everything or somebody who is claiming they have never had any kind of thought like that any kind of reaction like that in their life and of course all of us are somewhere where we've had some experiences like the one you've described and I appreciate you you know saying it like that but we're also in a period of a lot of change as you also said Dan a lot of we have a lot of people moving to New Hampshire who don't look like your dad or mom's New Hampshire uh, either um, uh, visually or their life experience, um, ethnically, you name it. And so there's a lot of change going on. Frank, I think one of the challenges here is, and this goes to the divisive concepts law, is um, being able to get at the same time to communicate. Um, you can be proud to be an American. You can be proud of many of the, the things about our past as a country. And also acknowledge that there are some things that we have done as a country um, that we need to face up to that are that we should be ashamed of and that we should learn from, uh, but that we can't simply look over it or whitewash it. And to do so is to give an inaccurate portrayal of America and our history. Um, this is a very difficult pair of ideas for a lot of folks to have in their head at the same time and probably gets at the core of the controversy about this divisive concepts type bill or laws we're seeing around the country. Um, how do we address that head on in a way that might help us eventually come to the right place as it relates to how we educate our kids in K through 12 and in higher ed? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we, we 100% agree we're better as a state and as a community when we can have hard conversations and learn from them. And that's why it's so important that, you know, kids in our schools are getting a full true picture of our history, both the good and the bad. And I think, you know, what, what we really need to do, and as um, Mr. Weeks alluded to, 
um, is, is really talk about, you know, not only the history of how we got here, but also give it, uh, you know, the context in real world current examples. And so, mm. you know, for example, right now, the racial wealth divide in our country is, I think, around, you know, the average white family is around $171,000 in wealth. Um, the average black family is about $17,000 in wealth. And so how did we get there? What, 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 were the, um, what were the things that kind of led to have that massive wealth divide in current society? And so given it the context, you know, starting with slavery, going to, you know, the various attempts after slavery um, with, you know, with Jim Crow, with, you know, convict leasing, with um, the drug war, which if you actually look at the history, um, Nixon's chief domestic policy advisor at the time, John Ehrlichman, you know, has admitted on the record um, that that, you know, the war on drugs was about controlling black communities and black lives. Mm. Um, he has said that in an interview. Um, and so understanding, you know, how we got there, how these different laws um, have impacted and created this, you know, redlining, um, uh, lending discrimination, et cetera. Um, and then giving, you know, examples, as, as was alluded to earlier, um, you know, in, in, in New Hampshire, black people are 4.5 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession, despite using marijuana at roughly the same rate. And so it's not only the, the impact of that arrest, but then the, thinking about the fines and fees that come along with that arrest. And so when you have someone who has, you know, an when certain community members who have less wealth because of our history, um, and then they are impacted by the impact of something that is, you know, supposedly race neutral, marijuana, finding fee. When you give that collective history and move people to understand that because of our history, certain community members have less wealth, have less ability to pay for things like, you know, a marijuana, finding fee, and then are then more likely to face the severe collateral harms of being unable to pay that fee. Um, I think it becomes much more real. The same you see with, you know, with housing, when you have to check the box on a housing application that you have a criminal record, or when you have to check the box on an employment application because you have a criminal record. We have black community members who are arrested, not because of what they did, but because of the color of their skin. Uh, you start to see how the history of our racist policies um, is in, in, in current society uh, manifests. So we spent a lot of time so far today um, reflecting on, I would argue, almost a defensive way of, of these uh, really uh, negative pieces of legislation and and how uh, you and others have been pushing back to try to prevent us from really backsliding in a negative direction. So let me flip it around here as we approach uh, the end of this episode. What would be some, and you've touched on this in all of you in, in your remarks, what are some proactive, positive ways that we can move towards a better place of greater civility, greater awareness, uh, greater collaboration at the community and state level? What are some positive things we can do uh, going forward? You know, I think there's a, there's a lot we can do, and I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. You know, there was multiple attempts this session to expand the divisive concept law, not only in the context of higher education, but also um, with regard to legislation um, that would have expanded the coal or our teacher loyalty law to include um, prohibiting teachers from advocating against any doctrine or theory that has that promotes a negative account of our history and both of those attempts were defeated um, so you know I think there was lots of unification lots of um, recognition that this is an issue that as was pointed out was you know thought unpos you know um, not likely to happen in New Hampshire until last year 
Um, and, you know, because it has happened here, it has brought together lots of energy to not only beat back, but also to kind of reimagine and re-envision where New Hampshire should be with regard to um, our history and teaching of our history and where we want to be in terms of building a much more inclusive and just society. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing that that's really brought out is really the need to connect the dots between rights and to connect the dots between advocates and to kind of build an interconnected um, framework for moving forward and so recognizing that, for example, we want to have a state that ensures abortion access, um, but someone who is undocumented, um, you know, we could have an abortion clinic um, where everyone, you know, has the ability to get to that clinic, um, can have, you know, can have an abortion care. But if you have an undocumented person who's afraid to walk down the street because they might be stopped by law enforcement, we don't actually have true access to abortion care because certain community members are, are denied that access because of other uh, deprivations of rights that are happening. And so I think it's really important that we start to connect and start rethink kind of what faith and just communities should look like. And I think, you know, when you get down to it, you know, right now we're spending, you know, vast amounts of our dollars on policing, on incarceration. Um, and when you think about it, you know, the actual needs of our communities are in housing, they're in transportation, they're in education, um, they're in ensuring living wage. And so recognizing that we need to kind of rethink budgets, rethink, you know, tax policy um, and move towards a much more inclusive and um, life affirming centered approach to kind of setting up what those budgets look like moving forward and connecting the thread between all the various rights, I think is something we need to do. Reverend, how about you? What do you think? What can we do going forward in a positive direction? Well, one of the good things that's happening right now, quite frankly, is that many, uh, many faith leaders and, and people in the pews, people in congregations of, of uh, all faith sectors uh, are waking up to the fact that this division is being done to us. And again, that it's intentional, it's well-funded, it's part of a national effort to divide and are beginning to have conversations, um, tough, challenging conversations, not only of awareness about what kinds of systemic uh, racism um, exists, not just in, from yesterday in New Hampshire and in the nation, but still exists today, the kinds of um, systemic concerns that, uh, that both Frank and, and Dan have mentioned. So just talking about it more, getting together, being aware that this is a top priority for congregations to have healthy conversations about what's happening um, is really important. And also, again, demonstrated by the New Hampshire Council of Churches is working with multiple allies on again becoming more aware of both the uh, the legislative attacks on beloved community and um, the kind of dialogue that's necessary across multiple boundaries so that we can do better. I do want to say one thing quickly, and uh, as Steve, you said that it seems to be a critical mass that's buying into this kind of um, division at this point, and I would push back on that a little bit and say it's a noisy mass. Hmm. I'm not sure it's really critical, um, and just as one example, um, I, I want to throw out the the vote in Croydon, New Hampshire, to defund the public schools, to um, cut the public school budget by 53%, came from the same people that are behind uh, this uh, this uh, the 
the uh, divisive concepts and similar legislation and similar policies and the similar movement. And um, the vote to cut the budget initially passed because people weren't paying attention because most people are just trying to, most parents, most good people are just trying to live their lives and just trying to survive and to generally be, be good people. Um, and so they weren't aware of what was going on and this intent to destroy um, a public education, but when they became aware and came um, and asked for a revote and were able to get a revote in Croydon, the vote to restore the public school budget in Croydon was 377 to two. <laughs> and what that means when people know what's being done to them, when they know what's happening, when they know these divisions that are being fomented, they can rise up and do something. And so part of what we're doing is just educating people so that they will rise up and make sure this this, this can no longer happen in New Hampshire. It's a good point, Reverend. It is, uh, and that Croydon vote is a great example. Uh, democracy is often not a reflection of the majority of the will of the people. It's a majority of the will of the people that showed up that day. Uh, and this goes back to getting people uh, animated and aware, conscious, not after a crisis occurs, which is sort of what happened in Croydon, right? You had a very small number of people who were engaged at the earliest levels of, of policymaking at the local level. And a very small number of people, if they're highly engaged, can make a lot of noise, to your point a moment ago. Um, and often it does take a crisis, uh, a reaction rather than something proactive in order to get the larger group of people uh, whose values we'd like to think align uh, more along of where we'd like the state to go are better angels um, in order to do it. So it sounds like one of the one of the themes here, certainly you, Reverend, but all of all of you here today is to educate in a way so that people are thinking and acting proactively towards our better angels rather than reactively when they see something negative occur, read about it, hear about it. Uh, and your point is well taken, Reverend. Uh, Dan, as we uh, prepare to close out, uh, reflecting on these things that we can do uh, individually as communities to proactively work in a positive direction, what else might you add? I am fundamentally hopeful. And I think to Gail's point a minute ago, this small, if very noisy minority that really wants to divide us I think, and yes, hope that they that they overplayed their hand, as we saw in Croydon and in local elections, especially school board elections across the state this spring. I think a lot of folks said, "Wait a second, we're not that reactionary. We don't want to squash the truth. We believe in free speech. We're not afraid of our history, even if we haven't all gone as deep as as we might still go." I, I really believe that New Hampshire is better and braver than this, and that more and more folks see that, especially when that small, noisy minority goes as as far as they did. You know, I believe my conservative friends and family, folks I go to church with, they do care about my kids. And if I can help to build bridges and, and educate them, and we can all help to educate one another about the stubborn reality of systemic racism and, and what we can do to to undo that, then then I think they too will come on side. And again, those local elections really were hopeful. These weren't ideological you know, progressives necessarily. These were local community members, who parents of kids in the schools or grandparents who just believe in, in the best of who we are, in, in seeking the truth, in confronting our past to, to build a better future and don't want us to, to go in that really 
reactionary direction. And, and they won by landslides in a number of cases. And, and I sure hope that'll continue. You know, part of casting that vision that I think can bring more people into this this future, this this more diverse and inclusive future is some really powerful insights that that I get from, among others, Heather McGee, the a great thought leader out there today who came out a couple of years ago with the book I, I so strongly recommend called The Sum of Us, which makes a really compelling case for how we all do better. Folks of European descent like me, folks of African descent like my, my wife and, and everybody in between, we all do better when we have real equality of opportunity, not just as a slogan, but real robust fairness and opportunity. You know, to take just one example, Citigroup, not the most progressive liberal institution, I'd, I'd say, recently estimated in a study that the U.S. economy paid a penalty of $16 trillion over the last 20 years because of discrimination against African-Americans, and that if we were to undo that discrimination in employment, in promotion, and, and on and on in access to capital to build businesses, if we were to get rid of that discrimination, we would all, as an economy, grow much more rapidly. Our GDP would grow to the benefit of everybody. So if we can you know, look to that future, and I don't just want to boil it down to, to GDP, because it's about community, it's about the joy of, of living in trusting relationships and growing, learning with one another, then we'll really be a better state. And we've got to constantly look to that future that, that I do believe awaits, although it's not inevitable. We've got to work toward it. And we've got to be reminded that that elections matter and that when decent folks, you know, step up and, and go to the polls and educate themselves on the issues, we, we can move toward that that more hopeful future. And and hopefully in the process, really each of us individually trying to broaden our perspective, trying to form deeper relationships with people of various backgrounds, not just in racial terms, but but whatever the various strands of diversity that, that make up our community, those connections within our families and in our communities will, will help us to realize the kind of you know, the social capital, the, the joy of connection that, that really makes life good. And, and I think we can get there, but we obviously hmm. have some work to do. Well, we do have work to do, but I, I think I'll leave it on that broadly optimistic, hopeful note that all three of you have rung at the end of this. I want to thank our guest today, Dan Weeks, a former executive council nominee, thought leader around the state, Frank Kanak, the policy director of the ACLU, and the Reverend Dr. Gail Kenny, the co-convener of the Faith and Labor Coalition, of which the New Hampshire Council of Churches is an active partner. Uh, Dan, Frank, and Gail, thank you all so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Great talking with you all. This has been Granite State Matters podcast on freedom of speech and civility. How do we live together? We're still on our summer schedule, so our next episode will be in September. We'll be looking at the rash of radical bills from last session, which of them became law, and whether or not the general public is starting to realize what is happening to change the way of life here in New Hampshire. You can listen to Granite State Matters podcast at our website, granitestatematters.org, or at your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening.